Hello, everyone, and welcome to MVPL Presents. There's a book for that, a podcast where we set out to prove to you that no matter your interest, hobby, project, or burning late night questions, there's, well, a book for that. This month, in honor of our first episode falling at the close of National Poetry Month, we've decided to tackle the wildly held idea that poetry is boring, old fashioned, and academic. Don't think we can do it? Well, there's a book for that of protest and poetry from Emmett Till to Trayvon Martin, edited and compiled by Philip Cushway and Michael War, is the perfect way to prove to yourself that poetry is none of those things. Instead, this book is poetry meets history, meets memoir, meets social justice movement. It includes the work of over 40 African-American poets, including Pulitzer Prize winners, poet laureates, and a variety of other transformative artists. The book describes itself as giving voice to the current conversation about race in America while also providing historical and cultural context. It serves as an excellent introduction to African American poetry and is a must-have for every reader committed to social justice and racial harmony. So whether you're a poetry lover, a poetry tolerator, or a poetry get-it-away-from-me-er, this book is one you should definitely not pass on. So for starters, what the heck is protest poetry anyway? Interestingly enough, there's not a really clear-cut definition, even coming from a book with that on the cover. In fact, poet Amiri Baraka discusses resenting the term protest poetry in his introductory essay to this book. He also states, as long as the oppressed tell their true story, it will carry the edge of protest. I would argue that any time a person with a marginalized identity or experience sits down to write a poem, they can be considered to be committing a revolutionary act of protest and resistance. Now, not all poets or people will agree with this or consider their poetry to be a protest. Some people are just going to want to call it poetry. But for the sake of this book, Baraka's definition is the one we're going to go with. At some point during this podcast, I hope you say to yourself, why haven't I heard of any of these poets? And don't worry, the answer is not because you're a bad person, or even that you might not know much about poetry. In all reality, our school system doesn't d- dwell much on poetry at all, and definitely not on contemporary poets. So while it's a good bet that you've read Langston Hughes's Mother to Son, Life for Me Ain't Been No Crystal Stair, Ringing Any Bells, and We Real Cool by Gwendolyn Brooks, it's also safe to say that most people who don't make studying poetry a habit aren't very familiar with many contemporary poets at all. And considering authors of color are almost always frighteningly absent in our curriculum, this goes doubly true for black contemporary poets. In the memoir essays that introduce each poet in this book, the vast majority cite works from these foundational and historical poets, as well as countless others who have formed and influenced their work. However, when we are encouraged only to look at and study and admire historical poets from the 20th century and prior, we're left feeling like poet Tracy K. Smith, uh, one of the poets featured in this book, who wrote, There was a time when the only poets I knew were dead. She goes on to explain that after immersing herself in her local poetry scene, she realized the poetry was written by living writers, by real people whose voices and antecedents rendered their work and the world of poetry in general more accessible. For the most part, with the exception of a tragic few, 
Each poet in this book is still living, still publishing, and still representing everything that protest poetry is about. In that way, this anthology truly feels like a living and breathing thing. I found this to only be more true when I started to read the poems themselves and realized just how in conversation with the past these living poets are. Just as each poet is constantly talking about and in conversation with their history, so too will we in this podcast. In order to truly appreciate this book, I feel that it is vital to understand some of the historical, cultural, and political contexts that these writers are often referencing throughout the anthology. This was especially important for me in writing this episode because my own white privilege has made my experience vastly different from these poets, so I cannot pretend to understand them based on my own worldview and life. In this episode, I'm going to highlight a few of the poems that really stood out to me and give some contextual reference points for them as well. These reference points are going to be unfortunately brief, and this episode is not meant to be a full course in the topics that I'll be touching on, such as the civil rights and black power movements. I'll be posting some further recommended reading lists on our social media sites, so stay tuned at the end of the podcast to find out where you can follow us to find more resources and what we'll be discussing today. Once I held a boy who didn't look like a boy. When they finally remembered, they peeked through my clear top, then their wild surprise. An excerpt from Emmett Till's Glass Top Casket by Cornelius Eady. In Cornelius Eady's poem about one of the young men named in the title of this book, the narrator takes on the perspective of the casket that held 14-year-old Emmett Till after his brutal lynching by two white men in 1955. Till was visiting family in Mississippi when he and a group of friends visited a small country store. Till reportedly flirted with the white woman behind the counter. What he didn't know, couldn't know, is that that white woman would tell her husband that Till had grabbed her and made lewd advances. Decades later, the white woman would admit that, in fact, Till had done none of these things, but it was far too late for the young boy. Not long after that fateful conversation in the country store, Emmett Till was stolen away from his family's home and taken down by the Tallahatchie River. There, he was brutally beaten to death and sunk in the river. Days later, when the body was found, the young boy was so disfigured that he could hardly be recognized. Although authorities desired a quick and quiet burial, Emmett Till's mother refused. She had the body sent back to Chicago, where she had an open casket funeral, so that the world could see what they had done to her son. And see they did. Unfortunately, witnessing what had happened to her son did not mean honoring the boy in any meaningful way. The two men were found not guilty of the lynching less than two weeks after Till was buried. But there's another young man named in the title of this book, right? I'd love to be able to tell you that in the case of Trayvon Martin, we got to see an example of the way things have changed, an example of a so-called post-race society. But if I did, I'd be lying. In 2012, 17-year-old Trayvon Martin was walking in a Florida neighborhood at night. He was on the phone with his girlfriend when George Zimmerman, a member of the neighborhood watch, spotted him and considered him to be suspicious. Zimmerman called 911, ignored their instructions to not engage, and then shot the young man dead. Zimmerman would claim it was in self-defense and would cite minor injuries to his person as proof of this. The only real difference between the outcome of Martin's case and Till's was how much longer our current legal system can take to process the same result. 
rather than two weeks. It took almost a year, but again the verdict was not guilty. Rather, the only justice Trayvon would receive would come from the community creation of the hashtag Black Lives Matter movement by Alicia Garza, Patrice Cullors, and Opal Tometi. In the wake of Zimmerman's controversial acquittal, oftentimes our system leaves communities to seek out their own change and their own form of justice, because the ones that are meant to be available to them seem frustratingly out of reach. This violence and other examples, including the 1963 Birmingham church bombing, which resulted in the death of four little girls, and the 2015 shooting of a South Carolina church in which nine black church attendees were murdered, is violence by civilians. According to Merriam-Webster, lynching can be defined as to put to death by mob action without legal approval or permission. Between 1882 and 1968, almost 5,000 people were reportedly lynched. 72.7% of these lynchings were of black people. And these are only the reported cases. Yet lynching is still not a federal crime. Only in the last few years have the House and the Senate come even close to passing an anti-lynching bill, which has been repeatedly entered into conversation for over a decade. This is portrayed frighteningly well in Not Brought Up by Ed Roberson, when he describes white folks coming down to watch a public lynching. The lynchings, each of the thousands of times it happened, the whole white town come down to a smoky picnic, each black blackened by the family there is in soot must have felt that magnitude against them stacked high come down out of the hills. In a lot of ways, we are still gathering to watch these public lynchings every day, and Robeson and his contemporaries speak out against this type of complacency often in their work. This seeming endorsement of violence against black bodies is certainly not limited to actions from civilians. In recent years, and especially with the advent and increasing popularity of social media, police brutality against people of color has become an issue that we've certainly all heard about. In an essay featured in this book, titled The Talk, How Parents Raising Black Boys Try to Keep Their Sons Safe, Janine Amber discusses how parents are forced to sit down with their children and try to desperately convey to them how to interact with police officers in the hopes that their instructions will help bring their sons home safely. If you are stopped by a cop, do what he says. Keep your hands where he can see them. Do not reach for your wallet. Do not grab your phone. Do not raise your voice. Do not talk back. Do you understand me? Reginald Harris echoes this sentiment in his featured poem, New Rules of the Road, using unique spacing techniques to mimic the halting commands of the arresting officer. Keep your hands visible at all times, above your head, in these brand new handcuffs. The poem grows more and more brutal as it goes, representing the ways in which law enforcement can often, if sometimes unintentionally, work to make people of color feel more like objects than human beings. By the end of the poem, the speaker has reduced their arrestee to a thing, closing with the terrifying do not say you do not fit the profile. This is America. You are the profile. According to the website 
killedbypolice.net, which is referenced in of protest and poetry, over 1,000 people were killed by police in 2019. A startling 29% of all of these deaths were black people, despite the fact that black folks make up approximately 13% of the U.S. population. This means that black folks are disproportionately represented in killings by police officers, in part due to the racial profiling that Harris references. The overwhelming majority of cases in which even unarmed black men are killed by police officers result in no conviction, and sometimes even in only paid leave for the officer and despair and outrage for the black community and their supporters. I have already covered several ways in which history seems to simply be coming round and round again, and the notion of police brutality against black men is simply one more. In 1966, in response to the shooting of Matthew Johnson, an unarmed black 16-year-old in San Francisco, Huey P. Newton and Bobby Seale founded the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense. The party's original purpose was predominantly to monitor overzealous police activity and violence in Northern California. Over time, the party moved to include a variety of social programs and desires for black rights, black unity, and black self-defense. In We Are Not Responsible by Harriet Mullen, the speaker lists a variety of direct and metaphorical ways in which the government and general society does not feel like it owes the black community anything. And that when black folks find themselves asking for rights, they are simply asking for too much. I found this piece relating in both thematics and format to the 10-point program of the Black Panthers. This program was first published in the Black Panther magazine and explained some of the main demands of the Panthers. Some of these included wanting freedom for black people, an end to police brutality, employment, housing, etc. The 10th point of the program closes off the list with the following. We want land, bread, housing, education, clothing, justice, and peace. These demands should not be unreasonable, and yet we are not responsible, which clearly demonstrates what Mullen thinks of the government's accountability to its black citizens, was published in 2002. While much of what we see today demonstrates to us that as a society we've not made nearly enough progress, it cannot be said that we have made none. One of the first and largest pushes for progress in America to end the racist Jim Crow policies that sprung up post-Reconstruction was the Civil Rights Movement from 1954 to 1965. Over the course of this period, men and women like Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X, and Rosa Parks became leaders of the black community and demanded rights, respect, and change from the white majority society. Rita Dove's The Enactment highlights some of Rosa Parks' role in the Montgomery bus boycott, explaining, And she's got to know when the moment's right. Stay polite, though her shoulder's aching. Bus driver, the same one, threw her off twelve years before. Whether Parks truly knew when the moment was right or not, that's exactly what ended up being true. On December 1st, 1955, she was arrested for refusing to give up her seat to a white passenger on the bus. On the day of Parks' trial, civil rights organizers encouraged black folks to avoid public transit in order to protest Parks' arrest. The success of this originally day-long event led to the Montgomery bus boycott, which ended up being 381 days long. It was also a big moment for Martin Luther King Jr. He would suffer threats to his person, bombings, and a variety of violence during the boycott, but after a Supreme Court ruling to make segregated public transit illegal, King emerged as a leader to be reckoned with. 
Martin Luther King Jr. was born in 1929 to a family where faith was a vital part of life. In 1954, King became a pastor of a church in Montgomery, Alabama, like his father before him and his father before him. During this time, King was also a member of the NAACP, and after his involvement in the Montgomery bus boycott, he was elected president of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference in 1957. Over the course of his involvement in the movement, he would travel all over the United States, leading marches, giving speeches, and encouraging black folks across America to stand up for what they believed in. His views encouraged peaceful protest, but they didn't always stay that way due to law enforcement involvement. For instance, a protest in poetry references the Children's Crusade in Alabama, organized to force integration of public spaces and local businesses. This was one of the first demonstrations where youth participation was allowed and encouraged. Although the first day of protesting was peaceful enough, it still resulted in the arrest of thousands of protesters. By the second day, however, the Commissioner of Public Safety demanded law enforcement turn high-power hoses and dogs on the black children, as young as six. Outraged bystanders tried to intervene, throwing bottles and bricks, only to be pushed back with the hoses and dogs as well. The horrifying images from the resulting riot and the notion of all that violence being used against the children of Birmingham would be one of a number of events that would lead to the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Perhaps most famously, King led the March on Washington only a few months after the Children's Crusade took place. Only five short years after his famous I Have a Dream speech, Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated on the balcony of his hotel room in Tennessee. While none of this man's legacy or influence is in doubt, Frank X. Walker does pose an interesting question in his poem, Little King. Here he writes in the vernacular and questions the role of respectability politics in Martin Luther King Jr.'s success. The speaker of the poem wonders if MLK Jr. would still be considered a great man, still be considered a king, if he wasn't a reverend, if he carried a gun, sagged his pants, was a DJ, or went, spray-painting, let freedom ring, and I had a dream on bus stops and stop signs. This notion is particularly poignant when you consider Al Young's poem, Blues for Malcolm X, and the disparity in the current public opinion when it comes to comparing Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X. Malcolm X was a contemporary of Martin Luther King Jr., and the intense racism in which they were surrounded shaped both their lives in strikingly similar and also painfully different ways. Perhaps Malcolm's early childhood traumas, the murder of his father, and his mother's committal into a mental institution were part of what led him down such a different path of faith from MLK Jr. Different, but no less passionate. By 1952, Malcolm X was a devout follower of the Nation of Islam, which was anti-white supremacy and advocated for a separate state away from white people. This is at the heart of much of Malcolm X's distaste for the idea of integration, which would all change after a pilgrimage to Saudi Arabia in 1964. Not long before this, he had left the NOI due to hypocrisy from its leaders and formed his own organization called Muslim Mosque Incorporated. However, within less than a year, Malcolm X would be shot 15 times on the stage of a speaking engagement by several members of the NOI. Questions of whether the assassination was predominantly as a result of his leaving the NOI or the FBI's infiltration of the NOI would never be answered. But for decades, Malcolm X would draw the short straw of history, 
known only as MLK's more militant counterpart. Blues for Malcolm X laments the ways in which the government is consistently attempting to commercialize and water down Malcolm X's legacy to make him more palatable for white Americans. In it, Young states, Now the very government that shot you down for dead has made you postage, stampable, sendable, official at last. Does this surprise you? Official history, a snake that hisses, a snake that hushes, smooths you out, burnishes. Burnishing and buffing out the more complex and complicated parts of history is exactly what men like Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr. stood against. And now as we move further and further away from their movement, it's starting to happen to them. I believe that protest poetry as a whole can work in direct opposition to this phenomena. The only way the actions, beliefs, and dreams of civil rights leaders and members of the Black Power movement can be distorted to better suit the overall American narrative is if we allow ourselves to forget their teachings, or worse yet, if we never learned them. From the prevalation of spirituals in the Deep South during slavery, used as coded messages for slaves escaping to freedom, to Kendrick Lamar's 2018 Pulitzer Prize winning album, Damn, protest poetry has always come in an incredible variety of packages. Black folks speaking their truths through the arts has always, and will always, be revolutionary. I think Angela Jackson says it better in her poem, Fanny of Fannie Lou Hammer, than I ever could while writing about the civil rights leader and musician named within the title of the poem. Fanny Hammer sang about climbing Jacob's ladder, rung by rung, that cottony voice rose above smoke and robes and swamps, dust roads, lynch ropes and water hoses, dogs, badges, and mud-weary beaten bones and bullets. Protest poetry and black art as a whole is always climbing that ladder, rising above and beyond everything that tries to drag it down. It is our duty as readers, writers, voters, and human beings to listen and learn from both historical and contemporary Black artists. And books like this one, of protest and poetry from Emmett Till to Trayvon Martin, are perfect examples of places where we can all start to do so. Thank you all so much for listening to MVPL Presents There's a Book for That. I hope you enjoyed our pick of protest and poetry from Emmett Till to Trayvon Martin. Look for it at the Murnau Valley Public Library Central Branch once we have reopened. Until then, you can follow us on Facebook at Merino Valley Public Library and at Moval Library Mall Branch, on Twitter at Moval Library and at Moval Mall underscore library, and on Instagram at Moval Library and at movalmall.library for podcast news, virtual programs, and more. Be sure to follow MVPL Presents wherever you're listening, and stay tuned for a new episode in May. Thanks again, and have a great one. The views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the opinions or policies of the City of Moreno Valley, the Moreno Valley Public Library System, or Library System and Services Incorporated.